welcome to Feed, a food systems podcast presented by Table. I'm Matthew Kessler, and this is our official two-year anniversary since we launched the show. And I'm Samara Brock. We really enjoy making this podcast for you and want to thank you for listening. And a special thanks for those who have reviewed and rated us on the podcast apps and told your friends and colleagues about us. And if you're new to the podcast, you can listen to our past episodes. We've talked to around 15 guests in each of our two seasons. They're all working to transform food systems, but not necessarily in the same way. Our first season covered scale in the food system. Is there a sweet spot for how big a farm should be? Should we be trying to build a more resilient global food supply chain, or should we be investing in more local food systems? And our second season, which we've nearly finished, has been tackling power in the food system, where we ask guests who should have more power, who should have less, and what this means for food system transformation. So we'll set up our episode that we're rebroadcasting in just a moment. But first, we want to introduce the theme for our next season of the podcast, which is, should food systems be more natural? So because we're looking at the idea of natural in food systems, like what's a natural diet, a natural farm, a natural landscape? And what does natural even mean? There are lots of calls for nature-based solutions to solve food and climate challenges. But does everyone using that phrase mean the same thing? People have different ideas of what is nature and what is natural. Which brings us to a question we have for our listeners. We wanted to ask you if you have a food rule that relates to naturalness. So a good food rule could be, we should eat like our grandmas did, or we should eat like the cavemen. Really, any food habits or lessons that you grew up with that really stuck with you. So if you have a good food rule to share, record yourself in a quiet room or just write it up and send us an email to podcast at tabledebates.org. And we might play it when we launch our third season later this year. And now, in honor of our podcast turning two years old, we're going to play our first and one of our most popular episodes. It's with Vatican University professor in plant production systems, Ken Giller where we talk about the food security conundrum. Debates about the future of food have become more polarized than ever, and little attention is paid to why people hold genuinely different beliefs. We are here to fill this gap by exploring the evidence, worldviews, and values that people bring to global food system debates. Welcome to Feed, a podcast and conversation with those who are trying to transform the food system. I'm Matthew Kessler. And I'm Samara Brock. And we've been engaging with these issues for years through our work on farms, around policy tables, and at universities. This show is presented by Table, a food systems collaboration between the University of Oxford, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and Wageningen University. So Matthew, what's on the table today? We're joined today by Dr. Ken Giller, expert on smallholder farming. You talk about scale, we can see that coming in all the way up and all the way down again, if you like, from from the field to the globe and, and back. And those influences are so critical to understand. For some of these conversations, Samara and I will be speaking with the guests together, though for the first few guests, I chatted with them one-on-one. And for this episode, I spoke with Ken Giller. Ken, of course, thinks about the food system from all different angles as an ecologist, as a smallholder farming expert, but also as a consumer. So I asked him the hard-hitting question and found out that for breakfast today, he had... A really crunchy muesli that takes me ages to chew through. 
Ken is a professor of plant production systems at Wageningen University within the Center for Agroecology and Systems Analysis for nearly 20 years. He is a former professor of soil science at University of Zimbabwe. His focus the last 25 years has been on smallholder farming in sub-Saharan Africa. In our conversation today, we talk about the huge diversity of farmers that can be found under the banner of smallholders, what gets lost when translating research into practice, and Ken adds nuance and layers to what he terms the food security conundrum in sub-Saharan Africa. My name's Ken Giller. I'm working on uh, plant production systems. And in, in, in that, we really look at the integration of agricultural knowledge at the farm level and above. So trying to understand, if you like, farms and farming and, and how that fits into the global food system. Ken was trained as an ecologist, something that carried with him throughout his work. After my PhD in ecology, I, I moved to agricultural research, first of all in South Asia, then Latin America, and then later on a big focus in Africa. So since the mid-1980s, I've been focusing in Africa. And why I think ecology is the perfect background for this is that instead of agricultural systems in Europe or more intensive systems, we tend to either use a big machine or throw a chemical at a problem. In tropical countries, in smallholder systems, we're trying to, to tailor the system to the environment and to both the social and technical, ecological environment. And for me, that's what ecology is all about. Can you explain a little bit about your approach to researching smallholder farming topics? Well, we use very much what I call a systems analysis approach. So, so using um, their almost engineering tools, if you like, of, of um, conceptualizing systems at different levels. So we look at the, you know, the crop, the field, the farm, the farming system, the region, the globe, nested systems, but trying to understand then particularly the context within which farms operate. So it's really thinking about how a, a farm system actually can operate within its broader social and ecological environment. And you've been working on this field for quite a while. I was wondering how your research or how different approaches to research have changed over time. No, that's a good question. I, I think for many of us, uh, our own career journeys follow a particular path of development of methods as well. And I started off, if you like, working very much at the at the, the crop, the field level, looking at agronomy, how to grow crops, and particularly working with nitrogen-fixing legumes, because they have this wonderful benefit of being able to bring in nitrogen from the air into the soil and into the crop, into the food. And then I gradually got interested in, okay, we could grow them, but how do they fit in then in a, in a rotation? So with other crops and the benefits, and then how did that rotation fit in with a farm? And then how did that farm fit in with the region? And, and gradually then moved on, if you like, from being at one point in my career, I was called a soil microbiologist because we were dealing with the bacteria involved with the crop. So right at that micro level, to the point now where we're really looking at, uh, you know, how do global food systems function and where's the role of farming within that? So it's been a, a personal journey, but also a methodological journey, I would say, as, as we've gone through that whole process. We're going to talk a bit about setting the table and setting up the context for your research, which concerns, among other things, the future of smallholder farming. I personally, I've been working in the food system space, both as a small scale farmer and as a researcher over over a decade now, and I still don't have a clear picture of the state of smallholders around the world. Can you help set the scene for us? 
So I've got a lot of these statistics in my head because we, we're going through a whole series of dialogues at the moment. But uh, we talk about something in the order of 475 million, so nearly 500 million smallholder farmers worldwide. In total, that's around 3 billion people involved in those households. And that's getting on for half the world's population, more than 40% of the world's population. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge number of people. And in a sense, asking the question that you asked is a, it's an impossible question to answer because, of course, it's such a diverse group and nearly everything that we say to try and characterize things fails in one direction or another. So I, I think we've got to be really careful of generalizations that they can be they can be dangerous um, because, of course, in one place we, we lord family farming and, or smallholder farming as, a, as a, the perfect livelihood. In other places, it can be a desperate... Uh, a situation of poverty and desperation for people. So it's it's really hard to say this is the state. Can you maybe share some examples of some of the ways in which it fails to characterize the heterogeneity of different smallholder populations? For instance, in Brazil, where many of the farms are very large, any uh, uh, what's called a family farm, which is really classed as a small-scale farm, would be anything around 50 hectares or below. Whereas... Um, in a recent debate, I, I heard that in India, 40% of smallholders have less than 0 0.05 hectares. I mean, it's almost a postage stamp uh, vegetable garden, but very important for them all the same. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that. So what we put under one banner is, is a huge breadth of, of diversity in all, in all aspects. That's quite a difference. I imagine there are a lot of challenges in thinking about what policies and different technological solutions to implement to move towards a more sustainable future. Can you share an example from your past that explores the differences between theoretical solutions and your practical experience working with farmers? I got involved in, particularly in the early 90s, uh, working with a program funded by the Rockefeller Foundation in Southern Africa, where we were working with smallholders across uh, Malawi and Zimbabwe, also in Zambia to some extent. And we had these fantastic technologies, which we could prove worked super uh, on, on a small scale with a few farmers. But you saw very little, let's say, autonomous uptake or spreading of those technologies among, among smallholders. And of course, you sit and you talk with the farmers and you ask them why and you start to learn more about their, their background and their hopes and their aspirations and how their farming system, if you like, fits into a bigger picture. And that really led me realize that, that we've got, if you like, the technologies to boost production and they can be, if you like, intensive inputs on the one hand, of course, we could use you know a lot of fertilizer, pesticides, whatever. We've got also more biologically based uh, approaches using nitrogen fixing legumes that I was focused on. But none of these things really seem to be taking off spontaneously. And then you have to question why. And that's really where we, where, where my own work then moved to focus very much on the broader environment and trying to understand the farming systems and how they, they fit in in a, in a bigger picture. And helping to paint the context too in sub-Saharan Africa, can you speak to some of the context of addressing the yield gap and maybe explain to people what yield gap refers to? 
Sure. We know um, from both experimental work in the field, but also from our computer models, which can tell us what the, the potential for production is in a given area, we can set what we call a, a benchmark potential yield for a given crop. And that yield, um, say for a crop like maize, which is a very important staple in Africa, can be in the order of something around 8 to 10 or more tons of grain per hectare. But current production in smallholder fields is very often much less than that, often one-tenth of that, to be honest, closer to one ton or one and a half tons per hectare. And the gap between the actual yield and what could be produced then locally is what we call the yield gap. And what do you attribute uh, some of the yield gap to? Would that be the type of farming, the soil conditions, the varieties being grown? So this is then when we move into a slightly multi-layered answer, if you don't mind. So in a given field, it's really down, if you like, to uh, often to inputs. It's often to soil fertility, so the, the nutrient availability. But of course, in order to make the most of any nutrients you put on, you have to use what we call best management practices. So that means you know, sowing at the right time, uh, the right crop density, using good genotypes, so good seed, seed of a, uh, a variety that can respond well to inputs. And doing all of those things at the right time depends on having the labor to do it. So of course, that can lead to um, delays, if you like, because people have got uh, uh, their attention on other things, which means that they're not always doing things, if you like, at the prescribed time. So a yield gap is nearly always uh, the result of a number of things, often a limit of the resources in terms of inputs, a limit potentially of the, the technology available to a farmer, and then often then a limit related to the availability in terms of labor in order to carry out the the management practices that are needed in terms of planting, weeding, everything in a timely fashion. And how about in terms of both population growth and arable land availability? How does that fit into the context of food security? We've been talking so far about yield gap at, at a field level. If we think about the farm level, we have to think about the what, what a family needs. And then we're often using this concept these days of a living income. So a living income is a decent income that can so actually provide um, food, but also uh, enough money for education, health, shelter, the basic human rights effectively. And we find often that the area of the farm is so small now that even if you were to fill the yield gap and, and to get optimal production, the area of land still constrains the potential income that a farmer or a household could earn so that they can't actually uh, reach that level of what we'd call a decent income. And in, in many cases, that they actually remain even beyond a poverty line. You asked a, a second part of the question was, was talking about population growth. And whereas um, population has started to stall in, in Southeast Asia, it's actually plateaued in China quite some time ago, in India also plateauing, and generally in South Asia reaching a plateau in the next uh, 10 to 20 years. In Africa, population growth is still going on an exponential curve. So it's really increasing very, very rapidly. And when we were in uh, Uganda a couple of years ago running a farming systems course, we were talking to local people. We realized that the median age in the country is 15.2 years. So we've got this huge youthful population all looking for opportunities 
but actually, of course, putting an increased pressure on all of the land available. And, and because farms tend to be subdivided among the offspring, that means that farms are getting smaller and smaller in many parts of Africa. And that's that's some really helpful context. You've recently coined this phrase, the food security conundrum. Can you explain what you mean by this phrase? Yeah, sure. It was actually, I was in Cape Town a couple of years ago, um, just about to deliver a, a presentation at the Global Food Security Conference. And I was struggling with a way of trying to get over the complexity, if you like, of, of, of my ideas. And of course, a conundrum is a, is a question for which there's no simple answer. And what I see is, is this sort of multi-layered problem where the countries in Africa uh, definitely need to boost their, produ- their, their agricultural production to meet the demands of a growing population. So both the, the urban population and the rural population, and, and we need more nutritious food to, to meet the sustainable development goal number two of, of uh, zero hunger. At the same time, we've got lots of farmers out there who are producing very little in, in the sense that they have these huge yield gaps. So there's the opportunity. We've got the demand in terms of the demand of the growing population. We've got the opportunity in terms of being able to boost production. But at the same time, the incentives for those households to actually take on these technologies, and we know that we can, we've got the technologies to boost yield, that the incentives are simply not there because the farms are too small. And so farmers or other members of the household, you know, whether we're talking about the man and the woman, and, and very often the women are responsible for the production of many of the, the food crops, their attention tends to be actually off the farm, looking for ways of earning money off the farm, rather than focusing on closing these yield gaps and boosting production. So you've got the opportunity, you've got the, uh, in terms of both the demand of the market and the, the yield gap, but we've got the constraint in terms of what I call many farmers being reluctant farmers. If they were given the choice, they'd be working in a, in a, in a paid job, which gives the, the guarantee of a regular income. And they don't have to rely on the vagaries of, of the weather, if you like, for their, for their food and income. That's a little taster of Ken's article, The Food Security Conundrum in Sub-Saharan Africa, published in the Journal of Global Food Security in September 2020. We'll link to the article in our show notes and on our website. I then asked Ken to speak about scale in the food system and how small-scale farmers are influenced by a globalized food system. In terms of this this problem, it's one that you say, well, where, at which level, if we say the level in that farming systems hierarchy, where, where are the constraints? And I would argue that, that they are multi-led. So at the, at the field level, we've got the constraint of the inputs. But of course, then at the farm level, we've got the constraint of the, the limited resources or the income of the farmer and where they choose to place those. So they could fill that yield gap or they could invest in their kids' education or maybe they can't do both. And which would they choose? And then moving up one level, we think about, well, OK, if we want to address this problem, we can do that through another approach, which is looking at cooperatives or farmer organizations. So we look then more at the institutional level, the level of the governance of the food system locally and whether we can change policies uh, at a local level or create opportunities through collective action. And then we move up, of course, then to the national level. And then within that national level, there are the national policies. But if a country decides on a particular policy around food system, or I mean, it could be a fertilizer subsidy or a direct cash payment or something, then we often suffer the 
problem that the countries around have a different uh, policy. So there's a leakage across the border or whatever of of inputs which are being subsidized but sold off. And, and so you can't actually avoid the fact that the country operates within a broader international system, right up to the level of the, of the global food system. And to be honest, um, in our discussions about the global food system, I think that we're often failing ourselves by not recognizing that that global food system operates in a broader political and economic system, which is all governed around so-called free trade, but it's often really biased towards the subsidies for you know, bigger producers in, in uh, more wealthy countries, which means then that global food prices are depressed to the point that those food prices back in the developing countries are right at rock bottom. And again, you can argue that's good because that means that cheap food's available, but at the same time, there's little incentive to produce it locally because it's being imported at a rock bottom price. So you talk about scale, <laughs> we can see that coming in all the way up and all the way down again, if you like, from, from the field to the globe and, and back. And those influences are so critical to understand. Thanks for painting that context and also the myriad of challenges associated with working with the smallholder populations and some of the challenges they face. Uh, I'd like to turn now to some of the solutions and thinking about what are the solutions and how to implement them. And in your article, you've suggested that we need some out-of-the-box thinking. But before we get to that out-of-the-box thinking, I'd like to explore some of the, the different perspectives or camps that people align themselves with when thinking about solutions. You know, where I come back to in many ways is uh, is, is that I, I really think that we have to escape from, from dogma, if you like, and, and signing up to these are the rules, this is how it should be done. And again, that's partly because of this huge diversity of backgrounds in terms of you know, people's cultures, uh, the, the economic situations, the agroecological situations, you name it. So... I think we tend to romanticize very much the, the idea of smallholder farming at one level and that many smallholder uh, farmers, smallholder households would, would prefer, if you like, a, a, a much more regular form of income, uh, whether that's, you know, if, if you sit and talk to many households, I mean, nearly always you say, well, you know, what would you like for your children? And they say, well, we'd love them to be um, to get a good education, have a job as a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, or so a salary of employment, which in a sense takes away that 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 risk of of, of farming. But at the same time, they're not going to uproot and leave directly because that is their rural home, and and the farm and land has a very different meaning than just a productive resource. So you very often find that. Uh, there are different signals which almost seem contradictory at times. So whereas, you know, people can't earn a living from the farm directly, they're not going to give up that land because that could well be the place that they'll retire to once they've, they've worked in the city for some months or years, and then they would retire there uh, later in life. It's often the rural home where their ancestors are buried and, and therefore they're very attached. So I don't think we can imagine that, as in Europe and other countries, you know, what we've seen in the past is basically a mass migration just to urban areas. People will continue to live in rural areas, um, and we should actually rethink a bit about how how we invest in those rural areas. Going back to you know your ideas, uh, your question, sorry, uh, related to other perspectives. 
thinking about maybe some of the different dogmatic perspectives, because I think at, at table, what we're trying to do is to reach out to people who might have more extreme views and put them in conversation with others. And certainly you're someone who sees a lot of this different nuance and both perhaps the good and the bad of these different solutions. Which camps do you think would be good if they were in conversation with each other? Sure. So, you know, maybe I should come clean myself and uh, tell you, what, you know, which, which side of the fence or which fence do I, I sit? Um, you know, I've, I've spent nearly all my career working on, if you like, biological solutions to, to, to problems, food production. So, you know, nitrogen fixation, great, intercropping, agroforestry, all these wonderful uh, approaches, if you like, to diversifying and intensifying uh, production. But at the same time, I can't actually sign up to uh, the, the sort of uh, strict agroecological camp because I don't think we can boost production in Africa without adding phosphorus. Yeah, we can get a lot of the nitrogen from the air through legumes, but those legumes can't grow without phosphorus. And we've, we've done lots of studies trying to look at you know, recycling of uh, animal manures and everything. Everything tells us that there's just not enough phosphorus in the system. So I, I end up coming back to the idea, well, yes, we can use all of the innovation of those ideas as, as best we can, but we still need, if we're going to have a productive food production system that can meet the needs of the farmers, we need at the same time to actually have some basic inputs going into that system to drive production. And I think very often we, we see, and I think increasingly some of the big uh, international organizations, FAO, for instance, very much embracing uh, an agroecological uh, position in which you start hearing people, ah, but farmers in Africa have got to reduce their fertilizer use. And it's sort of, I wish, I wish farmers had the fertilizer to use. And, and so do they very often. Um, at the same time, uh, currently you see a burgeoning of uh, pesticide use in Africa, which is being used in a very indiscriminate way, often using the wrong chemicals against a particular, you know, insecticides against a, fun a fungus or a fungicide against an insect, and often used by people with no proper um, training in the use of the products, uh, so that they're exposing themselves and their children and others directly to toxic chemicals. And I think there, you know, we, we need much more judicious and very careful use of technology. And sometimes there are problems like we had the fall army were in Africa uh, a couple of years ago, where people come in with emergency uh, actions to bring in pesticides in a very indiscriminate and very uh, thoughtless way, I think, as a knee-jerk reaction to a problem. You know, so I can see both sides of the coin. There are places where you need inputs. There are places where you shouldn't be maybe focusing on inputs in the same way. But I don't think it's for us to come up with a, a set of uh, you know, dogmatic rules and impose them. We have to work with local people, local communities, local governments to, you know, our role can only be support. You know, we don't own the problem. Our, our role is, in my sense, in, in my view, it's very much through education, helping people to own their problems and take responsibility for them themselves. Sure. That's, I think that's a, a very respectful approach, but certainly the international community has quite an influence on policies and import and export markets. And I was wondering if you could speak to the policy prescription that some people suggest that we need to focus on international trade and not aid. 
This is very much uh, part of the mantra of the Dutch government over the past years, is moving, if you like, from a situation where when I came to the Netherlands nearly 20 years ago from Zimbabwe, where I was professor, um, very much the focus was on untied aid. It was all really about aid for uh, very little in agriculture, very much for uh, uh, education or health. Um, and we weren't allowed to even have long-term relationships between Dutch universities and other universities in Africa without going to a tender process each time to avoid us getting, if you like, into any form of nepotism. Now, we seem to have forgotten all of those wonderful lessons and got to a situation now where a lot of the aid budget from the Netherlands but other countries is being pushed in a direction that you have to have the involvement of Dutch companies because that idea then of, of trade, of building trade and international trade particularly, will solve some of the problems of development. Now, of course, if you like, building markets, building exports can help at one level. But I think we have to question who is it helping and is it helping the people that we would really want to use development aid for? I think it's very unlikely that this idea that of trickle down, you know, we get the economy going and the benefits trickle down to reach the very poor. I think there's very little evidence that that works. And that when we are dealing with projects which are boosting local production systems, it's very often people who are already, if you like, already on the ladder to intensification or on the ladder to a better uh, investment in a company who are benefiting. And it's not really the poor. But again, I don't think it's an either or approach necessarily. I just think that we need more attention to the social safety nets, to social support systems, or to support for, if you like, the, the poor at the bottom of the pyramid, to allow them to take part of some of these broader initiatives. And, and so I wouldn't say, all right, we have to stop all that immediately, because there are some benefits. But let's think a bit in a more blended way about how we can both boost the agricultural production system at one level to meet if you like, export or national demands, but at the same time, look at trying to find better opportunities in terms of livelihoods for the poor. And I think that makes its way uh, quite often into the mainstream conversation in this topic. But I was wondering, uh, what are some less attractive or under-discussed topics that, in your opinion, can actually make a huge difference if either the private and or public sector invested in these particular set of solutions? One of the approaches that I hear discussed is that we need to look for land consolidation uh, in order to allow farms to grow to the extent that um, that they would be more economic and viable units. So basically, we need to get people away from the land. I think that that in the long term over generations might happen, but I don't think it's something that we should be trying to push or force because those rural homes are very much often the safety net for the households as they are. And we do see some developments around the idea of land consolidation where in some of the densely populated areas that we work, we see one farmer renting the land from five farms to actually farm it as one unit and make a more economic uh, operation of it and simply paying rent to the households who are then in turn, they're essentially um, looking at employment outside agriculture or or in, in the agricultural value chain, let's say. So I think that there are opportunities there that to see some of these happening. But I think deliberately going in, as, as was done in Europe, trying to force, if you like, farms out of business to make farming more economic, I think that's a rather 
dangerous approach because it's likely to have some really yeah nasty spillover effects. I hear some conversation around the topic of reducing post-harvest losses or creating the appropriate infrastructure that would make it more conducive for small-scale farming. When, when we talk about solving the food security issue, we talk about this idea of food wedges, if you like. There's a, if you think about it as a broad wedge between what we, uh, what we have in future and, and, and what we have now, and that can then be filled in, in different ways. I mean, we need to boost production on one hand, sure, but we, we need to reduce loss on the other hand, and we need to look at consumption patterns in the middle. So there are like three different approaches. And definitely a lot could be done around food losses. And particularly in the African system, a lot of that loss is really in post-harvest loss uh, due to post-harvest pests and the like, for which we do have good technologies, um, simple ones that have been promoted in the past years of being these uh, double-layered uh, uh, bags, what they call PIX bags from Purdue uh, University Initiative, where, where basically you, you can seal uh, a crop uh, the grain in a way that uh, insects can't can't damage the grain without using um, chemicals on on directly on the grain, and that, that, those are very successful and very useful technologies that can be scaled up. But just one caveat: um, it's one of the things we've seen is if people are harvesting too early and they put their grain into these sealed containers or into sealed bags too early, that can actually link lead that can actually lead to the development of um, fungi on the uh, on the grain which causes aflatoxin problems which can be toxic or in extreme cases can be uh, can be lethal in fact yeah something that we always need to consider is something might sound like a really good solution and and it still might be but we need to couch it in the right context and one final question what knowledge base do you draw from in your own research and work a, a fundamental part of my own work is spending time in the field and visiting households, seeing things with my own eyes. Now, of course, that's probably led to me having a, a dreadful carbon footprint over the past years. But I really believe that without that, I would not have the insights into the local systems that I have. And that it's been absolutely crucial in terms of us developing a lot of the approaches. So it's working together with local researchers, local farmers to really understand their production systems and to understand the problems that we should be addressing. And that wraps our conversation with Ken Giller. Please subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed the episode, share the show with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Who else should we be speaking to? What topics and food system debates would you like to hear more about? Send us an email to podcast at tabledebates.org. More information on Ken Giller and the food security conundrum and thousands of different resources on food system sustainability issues can be found on our website, tabledebates.org. Today's episode was edited and mixed by me, Matthew Kessler, with special thanks to co-host Samara Brock and our team at Table. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks, where I speak to Rob Bailey, Director of Climate Resilience at Marsh & McLennan, on the vulnerabilities of global food trade. The only thing that these things serve to do is push up international prices further, and of course, and cause more governments to panic, and you get this vicious cycle of declining confidence, more panic, more export controls, more hoarding, higher prices, etc., etc., etc. 
Tune in to learn how Rob thinks we can avoid these vicious cycles on next episode of the Feed Podcast.